This is an RNZ podcast. A quick warning. This podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. Seven o'clock in the morning, and I think I was asleep. On October the 1st, 1992, Debbie Gillespie was flatting in Woolston and woke up to police on her doorstep. I opened the door to Neville Jenkins with the search warrant and a whole team of other people, cars down the street, you know, and all these people in overalls that came through my house, went through everything, up in the attic, getting things out, taking soft toys and I, I mean... (laughs) Seven months almost to the day after Peter Ellis's arrest, after hundreds of interviews with children from the civic crèche, the police are following up on new allegations that have come to light. They walked in through armed detectives and said, read this, really loudly and gruffly. And my whole mouth went dry and my body just trembled. Early childhood teacher Jenny Whelans was home alone when the police pulled up on her street. Her husband Winston had popped out to the dairy and arrived back just as the police officers were walking up the drive. I had to get dressed in front of a policewoman and then a lot of the time I sat outside with the two detectives while they were going around the house and looking in the ornaments and looking up the chimney at the time. I went into the front room and a policeman had his foot on one of the chairs uh, I told him to sort of remove his foot, but they, they just sort of, you know, they just walked over everything. Uh, they went through the, the dressing table, uh, even opened a, um, a copy of our wills uh, and had a look at those. And, um, and then I had, I had a little packet of business cards, which I'd collected on a couple of trips to Taiwan. And they were most interested in those. The curiosity there would have been due to the um, accusation of Asian men being implicated in, in the abuse of children at the crèche. 30 years on, Winston can't help but laugh at what they focused on during their search. So <laughs> they, were, they were quite excited um, when, when they found the detergent powder samples. I could tell then, oh, they thought they'd hit the jackpot, white powder, and uh, they, um, I think they took that away. And uh, a few years earlier, I had been um, in the business of, of importing um, condoms, and um, they, uh, they took, took they, they were about probably 25 years old. <laughs> Debbie, who was 29 at the time, found the experience really invasive. Neville Jenkins and another detective who I can't remember, they behaved appallingly, they really did. I'd had a very major relationship breakup six months beforehand and I'd been writing a diary that I probably would have burnt. You know, it wasn't for anybody to read, it was just lots of... (laughs) angry rantings and all that kind of stuff. They stood by my bed and Neville Jenkins picked it up, flicked through the pages while I was standing there, read a bit and then laughed and said to this other woman, Karen, have a look at this. 
you know, just like so unnecessary. He went through my photo albums and said, is he gay, is he gay, is he gay? And they were, and I thought, how do you know that? What is going on? It was really bizarre. I lived in this wee cottage and we were standing in the living room and the carpet wasn't tacked down at the edge. He walked over to the edge of the carpet and peeled it back, pulled out a twig and said, what was this used for? It's like, what the fuck was that about? And it was not until afterwards I realised that I think there was talk about putting sticks up kids' bottoms or something. I mean, to me that just seemed absolutely bizarre. And as the search on her home wrapped up, the reality of the situation began to dawn on Debbie. Neville Jenkins said, oh, we'll need you to come to the station to answer some questions. And... Uh, and I said, oh, well, I'll be taking my own car. And at that point, he said, oh, well, I don't know whether that'll be possible. And that was the moment I thought, you're going to arrest me. And I remember him saying, do you think you'd better phone your parents? And I didn't want to. And he said, oh, well, you don't want them to see it on TV, do you? And it's just like, whoa, this is really, really big. This is Conviction, a podcast about the Christchurch civic crash case. I'm Ali Jones. And I'm Alexander Beza, and this is episode 7, The Women. The vitriol from female parents at the women. I mean, you could have cut it and fried it and crumbed it and fried it. Anything could have happened. I mean, I remember feeling like, you know, I'm going to come home and find, I don't know, my cat nailed to the door. It just comes down to human nature and hysteria. Feeding each other's fears. I had a lot of faith in the in the police, like most people. I thought there probably was something to it. It's late 1992, nearly a year since the first allegation of abuse at the crèche was made. Remember the little boy who told his father he didn't like Peter's black penis? That allegation resulted in Peter Ellis being stood down from his job, but didn't go much further as the boy refused to repeat his accusations. Then, in January 1992, a girl had claimed she'd been abused by Peter Ellis and the investigation was all open again. By March that year, Peter was arrested and charged. He was out on bail and the police were watching his every move. He was also out of work, so spending a lot of time at home in a flat he shared with his brother Mark. I remember the police turning up one time, said he'd broken his curfew, and uh, I think there was three of us there, we were able to say, no, no, he was, and he n never went out anyway by that stage, and uh, the police says, oh, it's a numbers game and you've got the numbers today, and they left, but I think they just wanted to take him down for the night just to hassle him. Years later, Peter told me that that visit served as a lesson. He was always very careful about sticking strictly to his bail conditions. In the 1992 snowstorm in Christchurch, I had to go report. Tonight, the South Island's biggest city is reeling from the heaviest snowfalls it's ever experienced. Even at sea level, snow is lying up to a metre deep, smothering houses and blocking roads. This is a three news report about that storm. Police warned people to keep off the streets as power lines were down in many I phoned up and said, you know, I said, look, I said, you know, it's going to be difficult for me to get, no, you, you have to report. And my neighbour across the road was so angry, he got out his four-wheel drive and drove me there. 
just about drove up the steps of the police station. He was that angry. The children were being questioned again and again, and they started pointing the finger at other crash workers. A damning report into the culture of the crash was finalized late August, and by September the crash was closed for good. Throughout 1992, as more and more accusations came to light, the number of police officers working on the case grew too. By now, at least half a dozen were involved in investigating child abuse at the Christchurch Civic Crash. None of those officers wanted to be interviewed. Back in 1992, their attention had turned to the women. Former supervisor Gay Davidson was one of the four ex-childcare centre workers arrested this morning after a series of raids. Police searched five homes and seized property, but won't say what they were looking for. Those arrested were questioned for several hours before being taken to the central police station. They took me to the police station and showed me the evidential interview. Debbie had been at the crate for about three years by 1992 and was head of the Womble section. That's the nursery for the youngest children. Nearly three decades later, she remembers watching that video of one of the little girls that she used to look after. She was playing with these two dolls and they'd been talking about the civic and the interviewer said, who are they? And she goes, oh, that's Peter. And who's that? Oh, that's Debbie. You know, because we were the people that had been talked about. And then she was just playing with them and the interviewer said, where are they touching? And this child says, their forehead, where else are they touching? Their chests, where else are they touching? Their tummies, and that led to... This was the charge of Peter and I having sex in a public place. I mean, for God's sake, what is wrong with those people? Debbie's mum remembers receiving a frantic phone call from her daughter. Debbie phoned us the morning that she was arrested and told us what had happened and Murray's been sorry ever since that we did not go over straight away but we didn't, we wouldn't know what to do. We'd never had any experience of anybody being arrested, we'd know anything about court procedure or anything like that so we didn't um, get in the car until a bit later in the morning and we went into the police station. Oh, I remember too, I remember Mum telling me afterwards that when I was in the cells for that afternoon, they had found out and they went there and sat there for the whole time just in case they were able to see me. And they, and they weren't allowed to, they didn't allow them. And then after the questioning, they put me in the cells. You know, I, I, the whole thing from like, take your hair tie out, take your shoelaces out of the sh my shoes, take the cord out of my tracksuit pants. You know, I suppose this is so you can't hang yourself in the cell. It was deeply shocking. I'd never seen a police cell before. And, in, and then in the police cells for, it felt like hours. I don't know how long it was. And I just have to tell you one funny thing. While I was in the cell, somebody, there was graffiti on the wall. And do you remember Twin Peaks at the time, the TV programme, and somebody had written, I killed Laura Palmer. So <laughs> there was like one light moment in that whole thing. And then they brought Marie in. And it was just like, oh, Marie, Marie, you know, lifeline. And she was in a cell further down. And then we had, the first court appearance. At that first appearance, Gay Davidson, Jan Buckingham and Marie Keyes faced four charges each for the sexual violation of one child and the indecent assault of three children. And Debbie Gillespie was charged with committing an indecent act in a public place. 
Her mother was in the court. It was dreadful. These four women had no idea what was happening, you know, and Marie Keyes, you know, she's one of the women. Her, her husband, Roger, was behind us with his teenage daughter weeping on his shoulder, and it was dreadful. And when something goes wrong, you think, oh, I'll call the police, but this is the police, you know. It was total disbelief. It can't happen, this can't happen. We're a sane sort of a society, that, you know. Experienced criminal lawyer Gerald Nation took on the case for the four women. In 1995, he spoke to TVNZ's assignment programme about the charges against them. When the whole thing started, the advice from the police and the specialist services unit to the meeting of the parents was, if a child talks about something that could be abuse, the first guideline was believe the child, say to the child that it's happened to others, that sort of approach. Now, that is an extremely dangerous approach to take. The correct approach should be to take what a child says seriously, to investigate it carefully. And I think that was a fundamental flaw with the investigation. It was what led, in my view, to uh, the women being charged. Gay said to me Nation's first piece of advice was to distance themselves from Peter Ellis. Because they felt, they being the legal team, um, our legal team, felt that if we all were banded together, it would be, uh, we could be taken down with him just because he was a male and gay. And they felt that we should be, it would be better for us if we were separated. Police refused to comment on whether or not there will be more arrests. The four charged this afternoon have all been released on bail. They'll be appearing in court again in three weeks. Leaving court that October evening was the beginning of a tough slog for the four women. Like Peter Ellis, their bail conditions were pretty strict. I had to check in every, every Saturday at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock or something. I mean, why did they pick such an inconvenient time? Was that? Oh, I remember one of the conditions being not allowed contact with other parents from the civic, but I actually had people, there were people who were friends I remember one of my friends coming round and, I, and me saying, you're not allowed to be here, it's a condition of my bail. And he kind of said, oh, well, fuck that, you know, I don't care. I'll be here if I want to. Of course, those four women, Gay, Debbie, Marie and Jan, were only some of the women working at the crash. With police not saying if they were planning any more arrests, Paula and her colleagues were just waiting. Oh, I feel very distressed. I feel for the four women. I feel frightened. Frightened for your own safety? Not for my safety, no, but for my future. So you're Stephanie, convinced of the yes, innocence? Yes, convinced. It's just so dangerous. Because we actually worked alongside them. And we've known it them. It was a public, well-lit, open daycare centre with people coming and going all day. There were parents, counsellors, teachers, college students. Unlimited people could come through that centre at any time of the day. It just comes down to human nature and hysteria. Just feeding each other's fears. Miss Cedar was close to Paula and remembers just how difficult this all was. It was like a juggernaut. It was just running over people and running over people's lives. I'll never forget um, Paula phoning me after they'd done the search warrant at her home. And she was just so distressed. Um... 
she'd had a visit from Neville Jenkins where he'd sort of indicated to her that um, that it could go badly for her in terms of her retaining custody of her little girl, who was about, I don't know, a year old maybe at the time, 18 months. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was just... It was just unbelievable. It was absolutely unbelievable. There was a lot of tears. Paula herself picks up the story. It seemed surreal. I can, I can remember at one stage just curling up in the corner of the lounge, just thinking, I feel like the whole world has gone mad and I'm sane and I'm trapped in a mad world. It, you know, some people would say I curled up in the corner because I felt like I was going mad. Well, I didn't feel like I was going mad. I felt like the whole world had gone mad and I was stuck in it. Paula was reeling from the closure of the crash and the abrupt loss of her job and then learning what was being said about her. Suspended from cages, us being dancing naked to the guitar and kicking each other in the genitals as we danced. And, I mean, it was snakes, we had snakes. I did fear that I would be arrested. There were two things that gave me an indication that I could be next. One was a child disclosed that I had made a little boy called Andrew lie in a white coffin and I had stabbed him and stabbed him until he was dead, was pretty much the child's words. Um, but there was no little boy called Andrew missing and we had never had a little boy called Andrew on the roll. So there was no little boy Andrew that I was supposed to have murdered, like he'd never existed, so the police couldn't actually find a missing child. <laughs> Well, I'm laughing now. It wasn't funny at the time because when I said to them, well, what would be your chances of being able to um, serve me with a, an allegation of murder without a body? And they said, oh, we've done it before. Um, and the other thing was that there was a detective called Neville Jenkins who interviewed me one day at my home. They used to try crazy tactics like ringing you at, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning and they wanted to see you straight away and things like that. Um, but anyway, they came around to talk to me one day and I said, am I at risk of losing my child? Because I had my wee daughter was about two by then. And he said, that's a very distinct possibility. And I can remember thinking, holy heck, you know, they could, they're definitely lining me up um, to be arrested. She took what you could perhaps call evasive action. Every night when I hopped into bed at night, I wrote my diary. And there was things in it about work and school because that's where I spent some of my time each day um, but a lot of it was about my little girl and you know my family and my relationship with my partner and so I had these diaries that when you look back through corroborated with the outing book that yes we did go to this place on this day but they also had stuff in them that was about my life and personal to me and also at the time I used a, um, a natural form of 
family planning. I had quite um, detailed graphs of my menstrual cycle and things like that. So I had mentioned these diaries to the police and I knew they'd come for them. So I thought, oh, I don't actually want them to get their hands on those diaries. So I dug them all out, went through them, made a note of the dates and everything to do with the, the crash. And then I burnt them in my log burner. Um, but then they, they raided, raided our house um, and um, boy they turned it over, they really did and they wanted those diaries and I said I know you want the diaries but they don't exist anymore, I've burned them. Um, but I've kept these notes for you. Well they weren't very happy about that, <laughs> they weren't happy at all. So um, yeah that was pretty horrible. The police knocked on the doors of some parents too. Parents like Mercida. I had a visit from Neville Jenkins one day. I was home by myself and um, he was asking me why were the women protecting Peter? Why were the women covering for him? Why were they not telling the truth? Why weren't they coming clean with what, was, what had happened at Civic? And I said to him, has it occurred to you that nothing happened at Civic, that Peter's been set up for this, and I made the comment to him, you might get one woman that'll cover for a paedophile, you won't get eight. You won't get eight women that cover for a paedophile, why would they? I said, these women are mothers, they're grandmothers, they're not going to cover for somebody that does, does the things to children that you're saying that Peter did. And um, I also remember saying to Neville Jenkins, at some stage, the truth will come out here and the police are going to look stupid. And he said, no, 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 there's a lot of people done a lot of good work on this and there's going to be some careers built on this. And I said, I don't think so. And after that, I am certain that my phone was tapped. Yeah, used to click and buzz and landlines and delays when, it, when you spoke. And, mm. This worry about being under surveillance wasn't isolated to Ms Cedar either. Uh, we had police setting up photo homes, we had them coming in and just visiting, you know. Just so, it was just straight out intimidation. Um, just as, you know, because they thought they weren't going to spook us out or something, I don't know. I'm on the phone to Susanna. She taught the Tahamori program. I don't know what they thought it was going to, what was going to happen, that we'd all kind of collapse and confess to you know, becoming a big satanic ritual abuse group or that we'd all just go away because we were inconvenient, because we didn't quite fit profile. Peter did, or so they thought, because he was different. Susanna's happy to talk, and in fact she feels after 30 years it's good to give all the events of that time an airing, but we're still using a pseudonym for her because her employers were not keen that she be involved in the podcast. I'm very annoyed with my, um, my employers kind of making me feel like I can't reveal my who I am, you know? But anyway, they basically said that I had to have an agreement with you that I would not be revealed. I mean, I, will let, I made it quite clear I could not see how there was any conflict of interest. You know, I wasn't formally charged, you know. Um, but the association I can't live with is that somehow or other I'm associated with pedophilia. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just, you know, it gets me so mad. But in the, in the interest of getting the message out I'm, and keeping my job which I do need um, I'm, I, I, I mean almost if I have enough money and 
bulls, I'd take them on. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it is, inter- it is interesting that they have yeah. even a right to dictate that mm. because it's actually, mm. one would have thought it's actually not of the business. I think it reflects that there are still people out there who don't want to be tainted with these things, you know, um, and um, and that there is still some people that might even believe it, there's elements of truth to it. Peter's mother, Leslie, who was probably in her mid-50s at that time, also fell under suspicion after her child said she was also involved in the abuse. She got accused of Peter holding those um, kids down and mum kicking them. Mark, Peter's brother, found the allegation ludicrous. Mum never smacked me in my entire life. She, she was just not wired that way at all. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to speak to Leslie myself. I met her once, but she already had dementia. So the only thing I can draw on are the audio recordings with Lindley Hood. I've got a mask on the wall that's quite horrific looking that I bought when I was in Singapore. It's a recording on a dictaphone in in a pretty noisy cafe. So so the sound is a bit ropey, but it's worth listening to. They took that and I felt that that the purpose of that was to to show children to see if they would identify it. Uh, But I also had a big... um, spider made of um, metal, which at that point was out in the garage. So uh, straight after that had left, I took that to a friend's place. And I thought if they say, if the children say they've seen the mask, well then I want to know why. They didn't say they saw the spider, which is, um, they couldn't miss it. They had a very cursory look upstairs, and I don't honestly think that was the total purpose of the visit. Although they were quite happy to take the videos, which they expected to find, uh, I, as I was the designated uh, video camera person for the circle incident, I believe, they expected to find the videos of that. The following story is a bit of a sidetrack, but I think, again, worth listening to. It illustrates just how far the police were prepared to go in this investigation. It's a recollection from Reese. Back in 1992, he was a young crush parent in his early 20s. And then the cop came round to my place when my partner was home, threatening to search the place. And um, what we'd found out was that the cops were um, basically taking everybody's videotapes and they, they were wrecking them. You know, they were whooping through in high speed and that sort of thing. And so we thought, oh, bugger that. We're not going to let them go through all our tapes and wreck the footage. So... Um, we chucked them all in, in uh, the car and I drove around the corner to a uh, place to, um, to store them while they were um, while they were doing the stupid witch hunt business. They obviously had the place under surveillance and when I drove off, cop followed me and pulled me over. He um, takes all the cassettes and everything out of my car and there's an AO sign in my car. I don't even know why I was there now. But he, he sees the AO sign and decides that um, he can arrest me on having an AO sign which um, I laughed at for a start. I thought he was just being um, silly. And is it, uh, no, he was being serious. For me, what's an AA sign? Oh, just a road sign. You know, every sign you see on the road that isn't, um, isn't an advertising sign. You can get them from um, the scrap metal merchants. So it rests me on it. And then um, I was charged with receiving an AA sign. Uh, well, I ended up going to court about it. It was quite a laugh at one stage in the courtroom. They had the entire of the serious um, fraud squad, British crime squad, what they called them at the time, 
trying to take me down. So it was really bunnies with cannons at the end of the exercise. The judge said, the case was proved, you know, you had a, an AA sign, but we were going to dismiss all charges and no conviction, that sort of thing. Gone. The police have copped a lot of flack from those who believe there was a miscarriage of justice in the crash case. The one in particular who dealt with Debbie and was so rude and arrogant, I said once if he had he'd appeared at the front door, I would have slapped his face. I was so angry with him. This is Debbie's <laughs> mum again. We've never really forgiven that bloke. You know, now he's only doing his job, but he didn't behave as we thought. Police were sort of impartial, you know, and, but these detectives were not. Colonied in particular, he irritated me. Some of the women just thought he was just lovely. I remember being in the, in the lift once and they gazed adoringly at Colonied, you know. As we heard in an earlier episode, the parents of those accusing Peter Ellis appreciated Ed's support. All of the children I know, uh, the three that I know closest or ones I've heard of, he imparted a great feeling of safety to them. But not so much the women who worked at the creche. Oh, I think he was a... He was an absolute prat, actually, but he was a dangerous prat. Susanna has strong views on Colonid. He found himself in an interesting role. He was weak. He's got no, absolute no character. Um, he loved to be needed. He didn't strike me as particularly bright, but... Then I, I had a real, we had a real laser gaze on these people and became very, we, we actively disliked them. So I was really surprised that he wasn't kept in better check by his seniors, who I don't think gave us, you know, was, they didn't give a toss about the professionalism of their team. You know, he should have been held to account for his own unprofessional police work for a start, let alone his, you know, his uh, behaviours. Some of the relationships Colonied had with some of the parents and oh. Colonied, good morning, Mr. Reid. Good morning, Mr. Reid. Were you in charge of the civic crash inquiry? At one stage, I was. Uh, yeah, I was in charge of it, but uh, at that time, I had one supervisor. As the inquiry got bigger, uh, I ended up, I think, with something like three supervisors above me. What we're listening to is an RNZ interview with Colonied a few years after the case in 1997. He's on Morning Report talking to host Sean Plunkett about those relationships that Stephanie alludes to. Mr Reid, allegations have been made about uh, you having relationships with two mothers of complainants. Are those allegations true? Well, yes, that was after the, the case was over. Um, one of them was involved in the, in the case. The other one was, uh, was part of, just part of the general parent uh, group at, at the crash. The first relationship was at the end of 1993 and the second was in 1996. So you're saying that at no stage during the investigation or the trial of Peter Ellis, you were emotionally or, or sexually involved in a relationship with any of the mothers? Not at all. Were you close to them? Well, I was close to a huge number of them. While, as he says, the relationships both began after the case had been through the courts, Ed admitted to some questionable behaviour during the investigation. Uh, I, I came home late one Saturday night after having a night out in the town and I received a phone call from one of the parents. Now, I made an inappropriate comment uh, to that mother during that phone call. What would that have been? Uh, well, I'm not going to go into that, but I've deeply regretted it ever since, and the next day I spoke to that, that parent, and in a pretty pathetic attempt to try and justify it, I said I was joking, and the result of that was that she made a complaint. Can you tell us what the nature of the comment you made was? 
No. Was it by way of a proposition? Yes, it was. And did you make it as a joke or did you make it seriously? Well, I actually don't, didn't recall it that well. Um, I think it was probably made seriously. Um, but in sort of sober reflection the next day, um, it was re- retracted. The woman E propositioned was Mandy's mother, the girl who made the complaint that led to the reopening of the investigation in early 1992. After laying a complaint with each supervisor, Mandy's mother decided to pull her all together from the inquiry. And as we said, we've approached the police and many officers who work on the case. No one was willing to speak to us. And that's not really surprising. I mean, Colin Ede himself has been kind of raked over the coals about this case. He's also made it clear the stress of the civic crash case was the main reason he quit the force after 19 years. Now we do have the outcome of an internal police inquiry into Ede's conduct too. Yes, this review took place in 1998, so a while after that morning report interview that you just heard, and it essentially cleared Ede of any wrongdoing while investigating Ellis. It found that Ede's boss chose not to confront him about the complaint from Mandy's mother to avoid anxiety, and that Ede was suffering from stress at the time. But it also concluded that Ede's mental health didn't impair his judgement in any significant way. On the proviso of remaining anonymous, one member of the investigating team did tell Lindley Hood for her book that the civic crash investigation was well run. And we've got an actor reading his words. Colin Ede was a very thorough investigator. You never had any reason to question anything he did. Other people became involved as the case developed. We sought expert opinion where appropriate. We looked at how the allegations arose, why they arose, what they meant, whether they were reliable, how we should deal with them. The notion that we just accepted whatever the children said is simply untrue. The scandal at the Christchurch Civic Child Care... The events of the case were consistently in the news throughout 1992. Today, the man at the centre of the allegations was staying indoors. I'm in bed, I'm tired, I'm sick and tired of the whole thing. As well as being doorstepped by journalists, Peter Ellis and the women started to feel uncomfortable when they were out in public. Things like that, getting that, the bullet in the, in the, and being threatened, and I was scared to walk the streets for a long time. That's Gay Davidson. And like her, Peter too received a bullet in the mail, as he describes in this interview with journalist Melanie Reid. It was just an ordinary brown letter. And I must admit, I suspected there was something wrong with it. It didn't feel right. Uh, but the bullet was wrapped up in a piece of tissue, so it didn't actually show a shape. So a bullet arrived with your name engraved on it? With my name engraved on it. What does that tell you? It tells me someone's very angry. It tells me someone is possibly at breaking point. And that, 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 that they're frightened too. Was there any follow-up to that? Bullet arriving? There was a, a phone call. Um, and I actually had a, a policeman, a detective was there at the time, and it was a male voice, and he said, you know, just to let you know, you mean, you know that it wasn't a joke, we're going to get you. Do you take that as, we're going to kill you? Yes. Yes. No. There's no two ways around. Talking to Peter, he was pretty sure it was a crash parent who sent the bullet. I actually went to child services. I was concerned about the child. 
Um, and I'm fairly sure Karen Zelis was the person I spoke to. So it's, it's a long time ago. To my knowledge, Peter never found out if his complaint went anywhere and nothing was ever proven. But the bullets in the mail, whoever they were from, illustrate just how high tensions were running. And this spilled over into the preparations being made by Peter Ellis's defence team too. His lawyer, Rob Harrison, had approached a clinical psychologist to give an opinion on Peter's character and also on the children's testimonies. I emailed the psychologist and I did get a reply, but it said, sorry Alex, I have nothing to say. Hope you'll understand. Yeah, it really shows again how sensitive this whole story is, even after three decades. That psychologist did speak to author Lindley Hood, though, but only on the condition his identity wasn't revealed, because he was still pretty concerned about something that went down. So he'd met Peter Ellis three times and had also watched the full children's interviews. Then out of the blue, two weeks before the start of the depositions, he received a phone call from an official within the Justice Department. Here's what he told Hood. His words are read by an actor. This person phoned to express concern that I was getting into hot water, that I would contaminate my professional reputation if I became any more involved. And this person claimed to have evidence that Peter Ellis was guilty as hell and that if I became involved, I would be seen as allying myself with Ellis. There were unspoken implications to that conversation. I wouldn't go so far as to say they were threats, because they weren't, that I would be committing professional suicide. I withdrew from the Ellis case as a result of that conversation. Of all the things I've done in my professional life, that's the one decision that I continue to question. The, the frighteners were put on me, effectively and emotionally. That's what happened. I was scared shitless. And Rob Harrison recalls it in this way. He calls me and he says, uh, look, I can't, I can't do this. Um, he says, I'm sorry, but words to the effect, basically, that his career's over if he appears on behalf of Alice. So he just stepped, stepped right back and that was the last we saw of him. So from being someone who was very excited and enthusiastic and thinking, right, well, this is an interesting thing to be involved in, to a very scared man who just said, uh, it's more than my, my life and my career is worth. And he was, but he was really clear that he had been advised, he'd been told on uncertain terms. So someone had gone and basically uh, kneecapped him. This wasn't the only obstacle Peter Ellis' defense team came up against. Harrison wanted help. He felt the case deserved a more senior lawyer than him. He wanted Nigel Hampton, QC. For anyone not clued up on New Zealand law, QC stands for Queen's Council. It's a rare honour for the very best lawyers. As of 2023, the title is KC now for King's Council, because King Charles is now on the throne. But back in 1992, it was Queen's Council. And Hampton was and is one of the most seasoned and respected senior barristers in Christchurch, probably New Zealand. In an application to the court to get Hampton on board and have legal aid cover his costs, Rob Harrison argued, and I quote, It is clear that this case is likely to be the most substantial child abuse case to be dealt with by New Zealand courts up to this time. But his request was denied not just once, but twice. That refusal to allow senior counsel to help him at trial 
to help Peter and to help Rob at trial was, I think, a failing within the system. I caught up with Nigel Hampton in crisis in 2019. Nigel recalls a young Rob Harrison. Oh, he was, um, he was comparatively young. I don't know how long he'd been out, but he was still seen as being relatively junior. Um, he was thought to be someone who was, uh, had abilities and was a prospect as you know, becoming a, a sound and able criminal trial lawyer. I think Rob was up to the task, but what I think was that instead of him being given a senior counsel uh, to lead him and him become the junior at the trial, he was given a junior under him with even less experience. And, and in terms of the trial itself, I just think that Peter was left with less than the equality of arms that he should have had. And I don't mean that in any disrespect to Rob at all. Equality of arms is exactly what it sounds like. Broadly, it's the principle that each party in a trial has the opportunity to present their case with the same firepower as their opponent. As the depositions hearing neared, the divisions deepened. Not only between the accused and the accusers, or the defence and the prosecution, but between the two groups of accused as well. Remember, Peter Ellis and the women didn't have the same lawyer. They weren't one joint team. And the women's lawyer, Gerald Nation, had a very definite strategy to separate them from Peter. I mean, it was survival, to be honest, and it sounds awful, but it was like, because our charges were different, he didn't want to go down with him. It, I mean, it sound, I feel terrible saying that now. While Debbie and the other women fought the charges as a team, Peter Ellis was to fight alone. In every passing day, the doubts crept in, as Paula describes. Oh my gosh, you know, this is just crazy. We're all in this together. Let's just stand united. If we, if we all stand together and speak the truth, the truth will be out, come out. So initially we all supported him. But the police did try very much the divide and conquer. Um, they worked incredibly hard on that. And there was a time, and I don't even know what the triggers were, but a little bit of doubt started to creep in, where I guess you start thinking, gosh, have we all just been absolutely blindsided? Has Peter just been so clever and so cunning and so good at this that it's been happening before our very eyes and we haven't even seen it. And then that was a terrible thought because we all just started to reel with guilt. You know, what if, what if, what if? Up next on Conviction, the evidence against Peter Ellis and the women is laid out in court. And, as 1992 comes to an end, they have no idea whatsoever what the new year might bring. The Salvation Army band came round about oh, two weeks ago playing Christmas carols and I just started to cry. Because, I mean, Christmas is a nostalgic, sentimental, emotional time anyway and I just thought, next Christmas I might be inside for something I haven't done. Christmas will be hard, I think, Financially, it will be hard. We know we have these lawyers' bills hanging over us. We don't know what the future holds in store for us. I thought there probably was something to it. You know, I, I went along thinking, okay, well, the police must have a pretty strong case if it's going to go to the court. 
Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beza. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stagpool was the audio engineer. The voice actors in this episode are Will Plummer and Phil Vine. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hing Yi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. 